Well, good morning. Great to see you all here this morning. My name's Dave. I'm the lead pastor here at Connect. And if it's your first time with us, welcome to Connect Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, I want you to just take a moment and just go back to your childhood here for just a second. Those fond memories. I say that we've got some people who still are in their childhood here. But for you older folks back there, you know, uh, go back to those fond memories you had growing up, hanging out with friends, meeting up after school, riding bikes together, playing video games, running down the street with a stick and a wheel. I'm not sure how old you are, but maybe that's something you did when you were younger. Um, Just all that quality time we used to spend together. Maybe you spent hours on the phone talking to your friends. And I'm not talking about this kind of phone. I'm talking about the one that had like the really long cable and you managed to stretch it all the way to your bedroom so you could shut the door and just talk to your friends. And then your mum would pick up the line upstairs. You're like, mum, I'm on the phone. And uh, they were just great times, weren't they? I had a friend called Rich Tate and uh, me and Rich, we just did everything together. We'd hang out after school. We went to see music concerts together. We had a big group of friends that we used to hang out with, and they were just great times, weren't they? And and I came to realize this week that um, I think the reason we all think back so fondly to those times in our lives with such great memories is because we were actually made to be connected in that way. We're hardwired for that kind of experience. We need other people. In fact, I learned this week that the presence of other people in our lives can greatly affect how we experience life. Here's an example. I found this uh, article in um, Psychology Today, and it talked about an experiment that a guy by the name of James Cone did, and this researcher decided to test uh, the, the, um, what it would look like for someone else to be present in their lives. And the way he did this was um, he hooked up some uh, people to the scanner, and it was able to scan their brains, and then they could see this TV screen. And on the TV screen would either be a blue zero or a red X. They would just kind of flash up intermittently. And uh, anytime a blue zero came up, they were safe, okay? If a red X came up, they had this little thing strapped around their ankle, and a red X meant that there is a 20% chance that you're about to get an electric shock through this thing strapped around your ankle. Yeah. Now, I'm just kind of getting cold and sweaty just thinking about this, okay? Because I'm a big wuss when it comes to electric shocks, okay? I don't even like static electricity. I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people, if I touch something, I just completely overreact and scream way too loudly when I get a static shock. And then I'm terrified of touching that thing again. I'm like, you know, (laughs) because I just don't want to get shocked again. I don't know how to connect with it without it shocking me again. So these people were laying there, and this researcher, he studied their their brainwaves and their responses, and he was able to determine the stress levels when these X's would appear, that, that fear that would build up inside of them. Well, then he ran the same experiment again, but this time, he brought someone into the room with them, and this person sat with them, and they held their hand. He said the stress levels reduced significantly. They actually then brought spouses in. When their spouse held the hand, even more so. He tried it again just with somebody sat in the room. And there was a remarkable difference between when the person had to go through it alone and when they went through the same situation with someone there in the room with them. He discovered that their brains responded significantly less when there was the presence of somebody else there. And I believe that this is because God designed us this way. He's he's hardwired us, if you want, that when we have people around who love us, we react less to stress. We cope with life better when we are connected to others. And I think that's just in our, in our DNA. Now, 
Here's, here's a problem with that, okay? I came across another study that was done, and this study was done by the uh, University of Oxford in England, so you know it was legit, okay? Because those, those people are really smart. So um, what they did was they analyzed three million cell phones, and by analyzing these three million cell phones from all sorts of ages of people, they were able to, to just analyze all that data, all the connections, the phone calls, the text messages, the emails. And they were able to determine through this study at what age we will start losing friends. You want to hear what they found out? 25. 25 is the age, according to the University of Oxford, that we start to lose friends. And they actually said that it significantly declines rapidly from the age of 25 onwards. The amount of friends we have up to the age of 25 is much more than over. Now, when I thought about this, it kind of makes sense because that's the time of life where you start to uh, focus into a career. You're not in school anymore. Uh, maybe you get married, so you don't have as many friends, but you have some more significant relational connections. But the reality is, what happens after that age is our, our circle of friends, our connections becomes less and less. Now, that can be a problem if we are designed for community because what are we going to do when we face those electric shock to the ankle moments in our lives? And I don't want you sitting here this morning saying, well, it's okay, Dave. You should see my Facebook page. I've got hundreds of friends. <laughs> Because I've got some news for you, okay? That's not real, okay? We are in a day and age right now where we are connected to more people than we've ever been, but that those connections are less authentic than they've ever been. Do you know, and, and it's just this whole social media thing is such a tricky terrain to navigate. I was in um, the blend this week, and I saw a friend of mine, and literally, I was working on my laptop, and Facebook told me that it was this friend's birthday, so I got up and I went over and I wished her a happy birthday and I came back and sat down and then I wrestled with it for a while whether I should also do it on Facebook. Because I was like, well, I've done it in real life, but does it count? I mean, do, people don't know that I wished her a happy birthday. You know, maybe I should just post, I did just wish her a happy birthday in real life, just so people know. It's really confusing. It's really tricky. But the reality is deep down in our core is this, this desire to connect with others. So what does this have to do with this series that we find ourselves in here called The Invitation? Well, here at Connect, our vision as a church is to connect our community to Christ. This is because we as a, as a church, we love our community. We're thrilled that we can partner with other churches this Saturday to, to put on this free breakfast for people in our community as we recognize five years have gone on since that tornado. But it's not just connecting to our community, it's connecting our community to Christ. We want them to connect with the same Jesus who's made a difference in our lives. We want them to experience that relationship with Jesus themselves. Now, some of you here this morning, you've maybe been coming for a while. You're, you're still kind of checking things out, kicking the tires a little bit. You're not really 100% sure if you fully um, buy into the whole Jesus story yet, but you're, you're curious enough, you're interested enough to come back, and that's fantastic, and I hope and pray you'll keep coming back. But I know that there are many of you here this morning that you are invested. You've, you've made that decision to follow Jesus. You've made that decision to, to go all in with him. And he's changed your life. You can see the evidence of him in your life, how it's changed who you are as a, as a parent or as a student or as a husband or as a wife. But here's the danger for, for those of us this morning who, who for a long period of time have been walking alongside Jesus, who have been following that path of being a Jesus follower. The danger is the longer we go on following Jesus, 
the easier it is to forget what our life was like when he wasn't at the center of our lives. We can very quickly forget what it was like to live a life without him at the core of our lives. And then we forget that some of the friends that we're doing life with, they may be where we once were. They may have that that vacuum. They may have some of those needs that we now find in Jesus. And we've forgotten what that was like. So the challenge through this series is that we we will look to say, God, I don't want to be so focused on my life that I miss out on being able to be used by you to impact other people. Because the truth is, we could be the invitation. We could be the invitation for someone to a relationship with the same Jesus that changed our lives. And I don't want to miss those opportunities. You see, we're going to discover this morning as we look at Jesus himself that when it came to that kind of downward spiral of relationships that we talked about earlier, he reversed that. Despite being over the age of 25, his life, we'll find out, was, was full of meaningful relational connections. In fact, today we're going to get an idea of just um, how that happened in one day of the life of Jesus. We're going to take a look at a day in the life of Jesus, just, just in one chapter of um, an account of his life, some of the interactions he had with different people, how he invested in the lives of others. And there were four guys, you know, who wrote about the life of Jesus. Their names were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And if you're um, new to reading the Bible or you want to get started on reading the Bible, this is a great place to start in the New Testament. You can find these four accounts of the life of Jesus. And the great thing about these four accounts is they all come from different perspectives. So they all capture a little element of the life of Jesus that maybe the others didn't. Some of them will tell a story that all four talk about, and some will will be the only ones that tell this particular aspect of the life of Jesus. But we're going to look at Jesus this morning through the eyes of Matthew. Matthew was a Jew and he decided to write about his experience with who Jesus was and the account of Jesus' life. And when we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 9, chapter 9 of this this letter that he wrote, we're going to discover this day takes place in the life of Jesus and look at some of the, the relational encounters that he had. So to to prepare us for where we're going in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to take a step back and and see where Jesus is coming from. You see, we're going to learn in Matthew chapter 9 that he was very connected to people. He made time for people. But here's the crazy thing. We're also going to learn in the very first chapter, of uh, the very first verse of chapter 9 that he was busy. We're going to discover that he's been traveling through this region, calming storms, healing people, teaching, casting out demons. And then chapter 9 begins with him returning home. And no sooner has he stepped out of the boat than he's greeted by a group of people who bring a paralyzed friend who they lay in front of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but after I've been on a long business trip, the last thing I want to do when I get home is do some work. Okay? All I want to do is just sit in my chair and watch some Netflix. Yeah, I'll be teaching on being a good husband and father in the next series. Uh, but I do, I just want to veg out. I don't want to do work. I've been, I'm exhausted, I'm tired. I just want to take some time to myself. Now, I will say that uh, um, that was not the case this last week. So this last week I had to go away for a couple of days to Naperville. And despite the fact that when I got home after two long days of being away, all I wanted to do was kind of sit down and relax, I actually spent all of Wednesday evening assembling our washing machine putting it all back together again. 
Now, some of you may be asking, well, why was it in pieces in the first place? Good question, let me tell you. So over the weekend, uh, Casey noticed that our washing machine wasn't working right, it didn't appear to be draining, and there was a thing on the dial that said ND. Neither of us knew what ND meant, so I got onto Google, and I Googled our model washing machine and the letters ND, and the first hit I get is this guy who explains that ND stands for not draining, which was exactly what was happening. And the reason we found this out is because he posted this video because his machine also had not been draining. So he took it all apart, discovered that the pump was broken, replaced the pump, and put it all back together again. And I thought, well, that looks pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. I thought, I'll give that a go. So um, I took the entire machine apart, following his step-by-step instructions. And then my wife was thrilled that I left for this conference, <laughs> leaving her with a machine in pieces. No way to do laundry. Uh, she spent a couple of hours at the laundromat here in town. But when I got back, the new pump was in and I was ready to reassemble. Now, I have to be honest, I had absolutely no idea if it was even a bad pump or not. When I took it out, it just, it looked like a pump. I don't know what a bad pump looks like. I mean, it just, and when the new one arrived, it still looked the same. So I was just, you know, fingers crossed, put the whole thing together, plugged it in, pressed the button, and it started draining. I I know, I fixed my problem. Now, we did notice that a little pool of water was appearing every time it got done, and it hadn't done that before, but... um, It was just a small pool, and uh, the money I'd save by not hiring a uh, repairman, I can buy paper towels for ages and still be ahead, so we'll just keep wiping up that little pool. I think maybe one of the hoses just needs reattaching, but we'll we'll see. There was lots of hoses, so it's, it's kind of confusing. But anyway... That was the last thing I wanted to do when I got back from being gone for a few days. And I'm so impressed, because we're gonna see here that Jesus, he's super busy. He's come back home. He's come back for a, a time of resting and relaxation. And no sooner has he got out of the boat. Well, let's, let's read and see what happens. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. Some people brought to him a paralyzed man on a mat. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Be encouraged, my child. Your sins are forgiven. So he's exhausted, he's tired, and straight away he's presented with this relational need. And instead of saying, you know what, I'm exhausted, come back and see me now, straight away he connects with this person. But he says something strange, doesn't he? Because I'm sure you picked up on this. The guy's paralyzed, okay? I mean, obviously what he's hoping for is a physical healing here. He's hoping to be paralyzed no more. And uh, his friends bring him there, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. That's kind of like saying, you know, hey, Here's a coupon for buy one, get one free Big Macs. You're like, thanks, Jesus. That's cool. I'll use it. But it's not really what I was wanting. (laughs) I was actually hoping to be healed. But you see, the problem is we look at this story through 21st century eyes. And I learned about that this week as I was reading this and studying for this. So, So this guy who's laying there paralyzed, he's in a culture and in a system where people in that day who were sick were under the impression that the reason they were sick was because of something they'd done wrong. The reason they were sick was because they must have done some kind of sin, something bad. Maybe their parents did something bad. But that was the reason people in that day and age were sick. That's what people believed. So what that meant was anyone who was sick, especially something very visual like being paralyzed, something very major, he would live with the shame of people walking by thinking, you must have done something really bad to be that sick. So I wonder if for this particular person, the physical need 
wasn't as bad as the, just the pain and the suffering associated with the emotional sense of this sickness. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew this wasn't true. Jesus knew that it wasn't the, the things he'd done wrong or the sin. He understood that wasn't why the person was sick, but he understood that's what this person believed. So the very first thing he says is your sins are forgiven. Be free. Be free from that guilt and that shame and that stigma that you feel from being sick. And it doesn't stop there. Verses six through seven, then Jesus turns to the paralyzed man and he said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up and went home. But knowing that this man, lying on this mat, had likely spent his entire life feeling the weight of that guilt and shame, Jesus dealt with his heart before he dealt with his body. This is the first thing I think we can learn about Jesus and the way he, he interacted with people, the way he invested into people's lives is that he invested in relationships by seeking to understand people's hearts. By seeing the bigger need. Everyone else saw the physical need, but Jesus saw how this sickness was affecting this man's heart. And he went straight to the heart first, said, your sins are forgiven. Just a few verses later, story number two. We discover that Jesus is, is just walking along in verse nine. It says that he was walking along and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. So Jesus bumps into this tax collector whose name is Matthew. Now, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I shared a story about my encounter with the IRS. I was audited as in charge of a ministry that was audited by the IRS and for the two weeks between the time I got the letter telling me they were coming to meet with me and the time they came to meet with me, I was terrified. I mean, I was, I was going to jail. I was going to be, you know, on CNN, pastor, embezzles, charity, you know, and I just was all the worst case scenarios of what could possibly happen. It turns out that a form they'd sent me to fill in, they didn't mean to send me, but I'd been doing it the way they told me to do it. So they were like, oh yeah, sorry, that's our fault. Carry on. But I was terrified for two weeks. But whether you're terrified of the IRS, whether you don't like the IRS around April time when it comes to filing your taxes, I think all of us would say that, or none of us this morning would say that we hate tax collectors. But in this day and age, that was the truth. People literally hated tax collectors. They were just the worst of the worst. And here's why. You see, in this particular day and age, the Jews were under oppression. They were, they were part of the Roman Empire. So the Romans, they decided to tax the Jewish people. And they decided to, to employ Jews themselves to enforce these taxes. So you had these, these fellow Jews taxing their, their brethren. And not only were they doing the work of Rome and taxing them, they were actually taking a little bit off the top for themselves. They were taxing over and above so they could actually make some money in the process and become wealthy as a result of it. And they had the might of the Roman army behind them so no one could stand up to them. So what it meant was they were despised by the people around them. But as it turns out, not Jesus. When Jesus saw this tax collector who anyone else would have crossed to the other side of the street to avoid, he engaged with Matthew. He said, follow me, and be my disciple. So Matthew, he gets up and he follows Jesus. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why is your teacher eating with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. 
Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call, sorry, for I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. When Jesus came across this hated tax collector, instead of ignoring him, passing him by as as many others would have done, Jesus decides to pause and invest in the life of this man, Matthew. In fact, he doesn't even just have a conversation. He goes to Matthew's house for dinner. This is what horrified the religious leaders. Just the engagement with a tax collector would have been seen as something you wouldn't do in that day and age, but to associate them, to eat with them, I mean, that was one of the most intimate places you could be in, is to share a meal with someone. And here was Jesus sharing a meal, sharing food with the lowest of the low. But you see, what we learn in this second story is that Jesus invested in relationships by affirming people's value. You know, it wasn't just the people's opinion of Matthew. I think Matthew had his own opinion of himself based on what other people said and thought of him. But when Jesus accepted his invitation and Jesus went to his house, that was Jesus affirming the value of Matthew, saying, I care about you enough to come and sit in your house and eat dinner with you. And in case you missed it, this was an investment that ended up lasting a lifetime. Because did you notice the name of the tax collector? His name was Matthew. Did you notice the name of the guy who wrote the letter we're reading? His name was Matthew. One and the same. The very Matthew that writes the account of the life of Jesus is this tax collector who experienced that interaction. I just imagine him writing and getting to this portion of his account and just maybe tears coming to his eyes as he remembered that day when he was so used to being looked at with disgust and contempt, and suddenly this man, Jesus, looked into his eyes, looked into his heart, and affirmed the value of who he was. There's one other story I want to look at that took place in the life of Jesus that day, a third story in verse 18. It says, as Jesus was saying this, the leader of a synagogue came and knelt before him. My daughter has just died, he said, but you can bring her back to life again if you just come and lay your hand on her. Verse 25 says that Jesus went in and took the girl by the hand and she stood up, miraculously brought back to life. But here's the incredible thing about that encounter between Jesus and this this unnamed synagogue leader. We don't know who he is. We don't know much about his story. But we do know from other accounts throughout the life of Jesus that these religious leaders, these synagogue leaders... They didn't have very good reactions with Jesus, interactions with Jesus up to this point. They were the ones out to try and see Jesus arrested, to see Jesus crucified. They were the ones who were angry at what he was doing and and would always stand up to him. And then suddenly, in this moment of need and desperation, this synagogue leader comes and throws himself at his knees before Jesus. Please, you are my only hope. I mean, think about it. Jesus could have so easy in that moment said, hey, buddy. Remember what you said last week about me? I remember. Sorry. (laughs) You blew it. But that's not Jesus. Jesus recognized that even though this man may have lived with his back to Jesus, may have lived as an enemy to Jesus, may never have needed Jesus up till that point, in that moment of needing Jesus, Jesus responded by being there 
for him because Jesus invested in relationships by meeting people's specific needs. Because he recognized that sometimes there will be a specific need and that'll be the moment that the person will turn to Jesus. They may never have had any need for him up till then. They may have even been his enemy prior to then. But in that moment of that specific need, when they came to Jesus, he responded by meeting those people's specific needs. So when it comes to relationships, what a, what a role model Jesus is to every one of us. In just one day of Jesus' life, we learn that he makes these conscious decisions to invest in the lives of other people by seeking to understand their hearts, by affirming their values, by meeting their specific needs. So what can we learn today from Jesus? I mean, the truth is, I think every one of us would leave being inspired and encouraged to think Jesus was such a great person. But if we this morning would say that we are followers of Jesus, I hope that would mean that we are following him by living our lives like him, to try and um, model our lives after Jesus. How can we, as followers of Jesus, live more like him? You know, one thing I noticed that inspires me about Jesus is that he didn't have this schedule that was set in stone when it came to relationships. When the paralyzed man arrived when he got off the boat and said, oh, I need some help. And he said, well, let me stop you right there. And he pulls out his Google calendar. He's like, oh, buddy, healings are between 2.30 and 3.30 today. Sorry, you don't have to come back. It's just not the right time. Jesus made time for people. And let's be honest, I think we could all compare calendars today because we're all so busy and we could have, you know, arguments over who's the busiest. But I wonder how often we make time for people. We intentionally push the pause button so that we can look to understand people's hearts, affirm people's values, meet people's needs. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus also understood balance. He also understood that there was, um, uh, as, as important as it was to always be available to people, there were times where he pulled away from the crowds to recharge. There were times where he spent time alone with his father. There were times where he spent time with just his closest friends, and we need that too. We need to create boundaries and safeguards in our lives to be able to, to have those moments to recharge and just have those one-on-one those -on -one moments with family and close friends. But, but what I see about Jesus is when he was out with the crowds, he was intentional. He was looking for ways to invest in the lives of others. He had the means to meet these needs and he wasn't afraid to hold back. What would your life look like this week if you were to intentionally look for ways to invest in the lives of people around you, to see their hearts, their value, their specific needs? Maybe this week you might find an opportunity to invite them to discover a relationship with the very same Jesus we've been talking about this morning and the very same Jesus who's changed your life. Maybe it's an opportunity to invite them to, to come to church with you, to come at Christmas when we have our Christmas services to visit. But looking for ways to, to invest in others and share what Jesus has done with you. I'll close out with this thought this morning. So as many of you, I'm sure, are aware, today is Veterans Day. It's a very important day, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but the reason we, we honor and remember our veterans on November 11th is because November 11th is Armistice Day. Armistice Day was the, uh, the day that World War I officially ended. 
It actually ended at 11 a.m., the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918. So literally 100 years ago today, World War I came to an end. The sad thing is that when World War I came to an end, they were talking of World War I because it was a terrible war. Millions of young soldiers died in, in horrific ways. It was a really brutal war. They called it the war to end all wars. And sadly, 100 years later, we know that is not the truth. We know there have been many wars since then. Just as a country ourselves, we found ourselves fighting in Vietnam and Korea and the Middle East and different places around the world. And today's a day that we, we acknowledge and, and remember and celebrate veterans, those who have served in our armed forces, family members, relations, grandparents, parents who, who may have served, who may have even given up their lives. I want to take a moment here and just acknowledge and pray, and maybe there's a, a veteran or two here in the room this morning. If you have served at any point in any of our armed services, would you mind standing? I just want to um, thank you for your service. I know we've got at least one. Come on, Andrea, up the edge. Thank you very much. You can take a seat. I want to embrace you too much. Father, I just thank you for the great men and women of our country, Lord that we take a moment today to remember. I'm friends with some folks here at Connect who have been posting pictures of parents and grandparents who fought and represented their country. And we are so grateful for the great sacrifice that they made on our behalf. And on this Veterans Day, we just remember them and we choose to be grateful for what they did for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the interesting thing about this year's Veterans Day being the, the 100-year anniversary of the end of World War I. Like I say, they said at the time it was the war to end all wars. There was a British poet, um, I say a poet, he was a soldier who wrote poetry during World War I. His name was Wilfred Owens, and um, he wrote some incredible poems. You can find them online, and um, a lot of them are filled with just frustration at the, the futility of war, how so many great young men are losing their lives. He actually died, sadly, seven days before the end of the First World War, died in conflict, just seven days before that armistice, before the World War officially came to an end. But one of the poems he wrote, the title was Greater Love. And he talked about the sacrifice that these soldiers were making for their countries. But he borrowed that phrase, greater love, from Jesus himself, who proclaims, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Because you see, that's what Jesus did for us. We've heard a wonderful recap of a day in the life of Jesus today and what he did while he was on earth and he did some incredible things but ultimately his purpose in coming to earth was to give up his life for us if you're a follower of Jesus this morning you have a relationship with our heavenly father with God because Jesus paid the price he bridged the gap between us and imperfect people and God a perfect God Jesus died on the cross in our place he made that connection. And we're so grateful for that this morning, but again, as I said at the beginning, sometimes we can, we can follow him for so long, we can forget this story that we have to share with others. 
And can you imagine if tomorrow in the news someone shared, hey, we're going to stop celebrating Veterans Day. We're going to stop telling the stories. We're not going to stop remembering veterans. I mean, there will be uproar on, on all sides of the political spectrum. Because it's been important for the last 100 years on these Veterans Day to remember and to be thankful and to tell the stories of what um, men and women did in the name of their country. And we have that mission too, to never forget the price that Jesus paid for us, the ultimate sacrifice. They said the First World War was the war to end all wars. Well, when Jesus hung on the cross, it was to, to win the battle of all battles, the battle over death, so that we may now have a relationship through him with Father God. So maybe this week, you'll find an opportunity to somehow, with the people in your lives, invest You'll see their hearts. You'll see their value. You'll see their specific needs. But maybe you'll have the opportunity to, to make the invitation. Would you like to experience this Jesus? Would you like to join me at church? Share in that story with others. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place. That was such a great sacrifice to make for us. But that's how much you loved us. For those of us this morning, Lord, who have experienced that relationship, we are so grateful. But please, Lord, help us not to get so busy with our lives that we just keep that to ourselves. Help us, like Jesus, to, to make the time to look for those opportunities to invest in those around us. And not just on a surface level. Help us, Lord, to see their hearts. See what's really going on beneath the surface, to see their needs, Lord, the specific needs they have, to look for ways to affirm them and tell them they are loved, that there is a God in heaven that loves them so much, that we could show them Jesus' love through our actions and our love for them. But help us not to miss an opportunity, Lord, to invite them into a relationship with you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.